Hello and welcome to MCR History Talks, a podcast created for the Manchester Literary and Philosophical Society, brought to you by PhD students Jessica White and Adam Waddingham from the University of Manchester History Postgraduate Network. And this week, tourism. In those weird summer months where we're given the freedom to travel, and yet some of us are still feeling a little cautious in these current times of coronavirus. So this week, we'll be asking, what is Manchester's relationship with travel, tourism, and the heritage industry? As always, we are recording this with social distancing in place. Adam is in Manchester and I am in London. Um, But lockdown is easing. Today I went to the gym for the first time and in a couple of weeks I'll be going to Paris. And (laughs) air travel is becoming a bit more of a possibility after months of seeing the skies basically empty. Airlines and airports are slowly starting to reopen. And we're now getting bombarded once more with emails from, you know, Ryanair and EasyJet about new bargain rates for travel. And Manchester Airport is opening its doors and hoping to return to its status as one of the most popular airports in the UK, welcoming, you know, millions of passengers each year. But that wasn't always the case, was it, Adam? No, it definitely wasn't. And while we might be getting the go to Europe for £29 one-way deals, Manchester's first civic airport was only really established in 1929. And this is born out of a desire for Manchester to have an airport in the years between the wars. So the end of the First World War and the start of the Second World War, that period of development. And the fact that the council owned acres of land on the site next to the present A57, an exciting space uh, just near Withenshaw. But it tells its history up to the kind of 1960s. So if we just think very quickly then, so uh, the 29th of uh, January, 1930, the Barton Aerodrome, Manchester's first airport was open. So the Barton Aerodrome is its original name there. But it wasn't really up until 1934 that discussions began with KLM, the the airline, about using Barton, uh, the aerodrome there, for international travel. Yeah, so KLM was the the national airline for Holland. And Manchester really wanted to be the site for international travel. It didn't want to be national. It wanted to compete with London, basically, as a site for international travel and serve the North and become a key, you know, much more than it was already, like key site in the North as a provincial airport. But KLM, when approached about using the Barton Aerodrome, uh, as a as an airport they've just there was something about the industrial landscape of Manchester which made it really unappealing the chief pilot of KLM uh, noted that taken from the meteorolo- meteorological standpoint this is the worst flying ground of any known to me in Europe the surrounding obstructions such as high tension pylons high factory chimneys and high radio masts make the approaches to the ground very dangerous our advice is to is to the local authorities is not to spend more on this ground but to try to find a more open ground in the neighbourhood of Manchester. And so that land was at Ringway, which is south of Manchester, which is the current site of Manchester's airport. And that site was earmarked for a new airport. And it was in 1935 that work on that airport site started and it opened in June 1938. However, during the war, obviously, the airport shut to become a hub of wartime engineering activity. So Adam, what happened after the war then? So after the war, we're going to do a quick rundown, if you like. I thought this was quite a good way of doing it. So we've got extensions, airport extensions. That feels like a very current theme, doesn't it? Runways that were extended into the 1950s and late 1960s. 
and then also into the early 1980s. The extension in the late 1960s allowed it to take on aircrafts that could fly non-stop to Canada. So if we're thinking of international travel at this point, that's one of those destinations that becomes quite popular. And Manchester was determined to direct some of the attention away from the south and bring continental and transatlantic travel to the north. So this was once again a question of civic identity and continuing themes that we've already talked about Jess podcast before about Manchester as a place and space and we'll come on to talk about a little bit more later on. But, 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 but by the 1960s then, so package holidays had grown in popularity which helped boost the importance of regional airports you know right across the UK but also particularly in Manchester for catering to journeys to Spain and the Mediterranean. Unlike today, no need to, of course, quarantine for 14 days if you go there. <laughs> but then um, in 1963, so only 91,666 people were classified under this heading. Which but is by the, nine... package, the package tour. Yeah, heading. But by 1970, this figure had grown to just over half a million. So we can see kind of a growth in passenger numbers. But then if we fast forward 10 years, 2 million passengers were now on these kind of inclusive tours to, to package holidays. So if we start then to think in 1960, there were only 860,000 passengers at Manchester Airport, but by 1981, there were 4 million. So we really have one of these engines of growth, to use one of those economic terms, for an area. We've got an airport that literally is, is quite, it's, you know, quite doubling its numbers very quickly. And I think airport history sounds a bit banal and inane and for only those interested in airplanes, you know, people who are standing half a mile away from the airport looking at the planes <laughs> coming in and landing. But airport history really is a site for so much change. There's a current historian called James Vernon, who's a huge historian in modern British history, who looks at the history of Heathrow Airport. Airports encompass changes in employment, changes in cultural patterns changes in social history and I think what's really important is that okay when like when when Adam you say there was a huge growth in the number of passengers at Manchester airport that's not just not, that's just not just a figure that shows that our relationship with travel changed over 20 years where it was no longer a habit for the elite to go on holiday but actually people had more money and people had the freedom to travel and that's really an important development Definitely. And I think you can take that as a starting point to think much more broadly about ideas, one of which is really important, I think, Jess, is talking about leisure a little bit. And I kind of wonder what what do you think this tells us about leisure in the post-war period? Well, we know from the immediate aftermath of the war when there was full employment, by which we mean if you were of the age that you were able to work, you could work. There was a, a new robust welfare system as well. Uh, people had the money. People, not saying people were rolling in it, but it's now known that people had a greater expendable income. Mm. There were also younger people also had earning a bit more money and this disposable income that they weren't spending on their children, they were able to spend on leisure habits. That's why we see an increase in drinking cultures during the post-war period because people just had more money to spend and that made travel easier as more people wanted to go on holiday the cost of these holidays diminished so holiday was no longer about traveling it was about it being a brief leisurely activity that was kind of universal which really became no longer as i said a habit of the 
wealthier classes, but was possible for a lot of people to do. Of course, international tourism was really important, but not everyone could afford to fly. And we can't overlook those sites of heritage in the UK, which still attract thousands of tourists each year, particularly old estates that are usually run by English Heritage and the National Trust. And so to discuss heritage further, we sat down with Jamie Farrington from the University of Manchester. Hi all. Hello. Oh. Um, I am now recording. Right. Jamie, can you tell us just a bit about your research? Yes, and um, thank you for having me today, Jess and Adam, and I would love to. So I look at 19th century medical history, particularly looking at um, the textile industry in Manchester, in the Greater Manchester area, as it is today, and also in the northwest of England in general, so, so, so all the way across. And what I'm really interested in, really, like part of my research is that I'm based with National Trust at Corrent Mill, and I work with their collection, and I work at the mill to actually try to incorporate medical history into their overall narrative. And actually, and that's one part of my thesis. The other part is actually produce a distinct piece of research actually looking at the medical history of Corey Bank, which is actually posted from an academic point of view without having the heritage side. So I have two distinct but overlapping um, areas of thought. And what I'm doing at the moment is actually trying to actually bring these ideas together and actually seeing how we can turn health and well-being into something sustainable that can be offered at Corbett Mill and actually you can talk about um, in textile industry um, completely. So rather than seeing the textile industry as just this industrialization, we can bring the people back in it and actually see it from a health point of view. Yeah. So the reason why we wanted to have you on the show was while you do look at the history of Manchester, you are very much part of the heritage industry and you're looking at that aspect as well, aren't you? Yes, I am. Indeed. So I guess, and Jamie, you've talked about like how it's distinct in a couple of ways. I wonder if you could just say something about how how distinct heritage is for you and what heritage actually means to you as an historian. Oh, so heritage is a great term. I, li- I like the word heritage because it has so many different meanings for different people. So it's when, I, when I'm putting my heritage hat on with Quarry Mill, I'm looking at it from a historical property point of view. So I'm looking at how um, Quarry Bank and the National Trust can actually take the history of a site and actually conserve it and um, present it and create new narratives to actually attract visitors from all around to actually talk to them about their own culture, their own, their, their own past. Because many people that visit Corrie Bank are from the local area too. People actually come far and wide themselves, but a lot, we get a lot of Manchester-based visitors. And these people might be related to not maybe the people at Corrie Bank in the 19th century, but maybe to actually factory workers and, tex- and textile workers that live in Manchester, that live in Manchester at the time. So what we find is we try to encourage these people to actually understand this industrial heritage, understand their own history and, and try to actually make connections with them uh, now, um, as um, with them in the past, but also try to think about how their lives today have been impacted by the industrialization. So like part of what I have done with the Healthy Profit Exhibition, which is one of the aspects of my research, is actually try to help link how modern day um, working affects itself and how that compares to Mill work. So trying to actually bring in this narrative of like health and well-being today and how it, and how that differed from what was happening in the past. But one thing I really like about heritage is that, that even though I talk about it quite in from the historical heritage property point of view, heritage has this meaning for anyone. It can be quite intangible. Each different person has their own relationship with heritage. And trying to understand that relationship is all part of the part of the game for me, really. Trying to actually understand how each how heritage is so broad and so personal. To a, mm. to a person rather than just being this broad um, overarching story. Exactly and it's, it's quite funny isn't it because we see sometimes we can see the heritage sector as an elite form of uh, leisure 
you have to be a mm. National Trust member to visit a lot of their properties. Mm. But really, it's it, well, in particular, Quarry Bank and the Style Estate, they are the history of workers. Um, mm, yeah. Could you just tell us a bit more about what Quarry Bank Mill is and the Style Estate is and what it is now? Yes, of course. Um, so Quarry Mill is um, probably the oldest still working textile mill in Europe. So that is one of its uh, unique factors. And um, the National Trust has, for the last, since like the 1950s, when they actually took ownership, really, has been working um, to conserve the mill, to keep it running and keep it up to date, to actually allow visitors to have what an like, authentic experience, uh, or near as authentic as possible, of textile work at the time. So you can go, people visiting go to the mill, they can actually go around the mill buildings and they actually get told the story of Koi Bank and its owners, the Greg family, the workers at the mill and see all the different um, aspects of their lives there. However, it also tells a much broader story of um, textile work in England and also Wales and Scotland during this period. It tries to bring in different relationships and actually try to make people understand that this um, Koi Bank is not just a singular place but it's part of a much wider nationwide context and that is and that is one thing that is really important for Koi Bank and the, the National Trust are going further now so rather than just trying to see how heritage can actually talk about the past they're trying to think about how they can use the property to actually engage in different ways so they realize they have lots of they have lots of like air and space and a lot of the properties have this sort of same air um, same sort of aspects and they're actually trying to encourage people to do different activities like walking, rambling, outside yoga, lots of different things they can actually do to actually encourage well-being today which may not necessarily have a direct link to the history of the site but it's kind of actually moving the heritage on so rather than seeing these heritage sites as like fixed in time and being a set his a historical point of view these things as living places people actually come to them and the heritage of places actually still going so, so today when visitors go to the site um, the mill is not the same mill as it was 200 years ago when it first opened but it's still quite about mill and it still hasn't it has a new history these people may not be workers but they are still just as part of the mill's history and say it's still around in 200 years you can actually talk about how <laughs> the natural trust comes well, about well yeah. actually jamie that's a really fascinating point because when you were talking then the kind of the thing that came across to me was when you were actually talking about the role of the national trust as well in this mm. so talking about it and i'm going to hold my hands up here like when you said in the 1950s i was quite shocked at that actually national trust being involved in a mill at that time because i've kind of got this image in my head and this could be a very wrong image but stately homes is basically a national yeah, trust yeah, staple completely know what you mean yeah so i'm really interested then in when you say you know the national trust has had a role in in running this estate i wonder if you could just explain a little bit more about how the national trust is involved then yeah, so the National Trust took over like ownership from, um, it was the Greg family. The Greg family continually owned that property up until around the 1950s from like, eight, um, from like 1785. They actually had to continue ownership from that point. And they took over it and, it, and for a while it was not open to the public. It became, it was, but it was eventually made into a museum about like, by 1970. It took them a long time to actually uh, make it, renovate it and actually present a new story. But since that point, they have been, um, taking the opportunity to actually engage with the local surroundings because the natural trust don't just own the mill but they also know, own the actual whole area including the village itself and all the properties so they actually so they so they actually have people living on site who live there that have been tenants of them for like for 60 plus years now so they actually have a whole deep relationship with the people around them they actually own the churches and all that, that area too so the natural trust are in a, in a way also land, landowners they actually work as um, landlords they actually have to engage with local people it's not just about running the mill itself it's about trying to actually 
uh, run this landscape and actually try to make sure that everyone around the landscape is actually happy and content to live there. So they and they do a lot of work to maintain it. So you can sort of see that. So you sort of see people that actually live in the, in the cottages also volunteer at the mill. They try to actually engage people as much as possible in that local community. They they have created they well the what the great community that the grace created in the 19th century. The National Trust are now um, maintaining and actually growing themselves. So it's, it's continuation of the past. And I think that's so important as well, because often we think that the National Trust, kind of a high, highbrow society, as I said, membership can be really expensive for the National yeah. Trust, unless you're a student, it is a lot of money. And it seems like they own these sprawling estates, which very few people can access. But actually, as you say, they actually, they still play an important role. Why do you think it's so important that we continue to have organizations such as National Trust? I realize that you, they fund half of your research, um, you know. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> why uh, do you believe it's such an important organization? So not on a personal level, not from, my, from what I gain from them personally, but um, <laughs> these properties, these properties have been bought by this charity. The charity actually have um, have been able to actually buy these properties up, and otherwise, many of them would actually go into disrepair and fall apart. You can, um, if you look into Manchester, so Manchester, like the Cosmopolis, the industrial, the first industrial city, a lot of the old mill buildings you see now are being converted into luxury flats and apartments, uh, and that's a good purpose for me. It's, it's always important to actually try to reincorporate rather than actually knocking these things down and building new. It's nice to see them still in the landscape, but where the National Trust is different, including its role as a heritage organisation, they're able to maintain these stories, these narratives, which people who maybe don't have a historical background, people that say aren't able to like spend their days researching history or actually looking at these sort of things, they have a window into the into the world. And I admit that the pay uh, the paywall is not something I am. Fully, I, I, I will be fully supportive of. I understand why they need it because obviously they are a charity and they need to, and they actually get a lot of their funding from their members to actually maintain the services they provide. But one thing I know that the National Trust do to actually negate the paywall is that they open the grounds up for free. So maybe the properties may be to actually renter you have to pay, but the entire grounds of the, each estate you can actually walk around free. And all the actual like natural coastlines and actually forests, they're all free as well. And they maintain them for people as well. So there's things that aren't just properties that the National Trust are in charge of and you have, so it's, it's a much broader picture. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting when you say that as well, Jamie, because one of the things, and we talked about this in our last episode, and I'm very confident we're recording this at the moment on, on Zoom again, so we're, yeah. we're sticking in line with being socially distanced. But I wonder if you could just say something about how, you know, the impact of, of COVID has had on, on the heritage sector as, as a thing and itself, you know, also your experiences as well. You know, we're, we're doing this at the moment virtually. How have you carried on your research and also work of the estate? No, it's, it has been difficult. I mean, and the National Trust has admitted and I've been very upfront about the difficulties they have faced um, with the COVID situation. On the 2nd of May, um, the BBC reported that the National Trust had lost 200 million so far since being shut down for lockdown and that is only growing. The, the trust is reopening properties now and things are starting to actually emerge but obviously it's not going to be the same way and they don't know, they, they're not fully, they're probably not fully aware of the future yet so they are going to do what they can to keep things open but they are trying, but they have, they have been very honest from what I can tell and I don't actually work for them so I can't actually only get in the workings of that but from what I can say they're, they're, they are doing what they can to negate. They want to keep these properties open. 
and they're trying to, and they want to actually preserve them because obviously their motto is um, um, forever for everyone and that is the whole point. Everything they do is about conserving these properties so that anyone in the past, present in the past, anyone in the present and the future can actually um, enjoy them. And I think that's so important now when international tourism is curtailed or less appealing, mm -hmm. the staycation has acquired increasing importance hasn't it? So, so will these, uh, these National Trust properties. Mm -hmm. I have to say, I am not as worried about the National Trust but myself. I'm more worried for the smaller heritage venues, the ones that rely, that rely on um, indoor sort of finance and, and numbers to actually get their funding. And it's the smaller ones that maybe don't have the same sort of reserves to actually weather the storm. Um, I have friends working in the Heritage Lottery Fund and they are getting lots of applications from these things and people are having to close down that haven't come to light yet. And it's kind of like you, we, you expect it to happen. It's something that actually is, is a worry and you would like to see it sort of like come about and hopefully the government can actually sort of help out more. But we, at this moment in time, it's just still in the air. It's, it's, an, it's an unknown. But Jamie, what are the prospects for you in terms of getting back to Quarry Bank Mail? Uh, it's, I am still kind of waiting. Uh, I am, um, so what I said, I have been told that people are going back to work. So people that have been in Fairlock like Coy Bank are finally coming back. But I am not there yet. So I'm hoping in the next couple of months I might actually get permission to actually go back or even have, or have a bit more contact. But right now it's just a bit more in the air. So I, I am a bit uncertain, I have to admit. But I fingers crossed, I'm optimistic. Yeah. Okay, Jamie, that's really interesting. Thank you so much. That's Jamie Farrington there, who's a PhD student with the University of Manchester, talking about the Quarry Bank Mill. And it's interesting there that Jamie talks about kind of staycations, Jess, and the ideas of staying at home as a form of tourism, the holiday in, in your own country, essentially. I've seen a growth in a number of different places and spaces, a theme we've talked about before, Jess. And one of those areas that's grown in terms of tourism is Manchester. So if we were to say uh, tourism in Manchester, Jess, what kind of images spring to your mind first off? Well, yeah, like you say, we don't always associate Manchester being traditionally a site of tourism. Increasingly so, I think what comes to mind when we think of Manchester is these old industrial terrace streets, such as the site of Coronation Street. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> Coronation Street is emblematic of Mancunian life. And I think it's really attracted people to the area as a site of representations of industrial living that were popularized in the cinema in the 60s and 70s. Definitely and that's the that's the subject of an article by Peter Schofield and I think it's quite useful if I just very briefly explain Schofield's article images Hollywood representations and media collections of images of Manchester particularly talks in kind of one of two ways so the first part is to break down a, quite a sociological uh, perspective on how heritage and heritage tourism has grown um, and Schofield is quite useful I think in looking at different bits of it so breaking down and we'll come on to talk about this in a minute but quite a nice case study based in Manchester uh, based around ideas of space and place in the city and how that's been represented but also looking at how that works in the sense of looking at the components of how areas of heritage and Heritage, heritage have been marketed. So looking at kind of people, physical evidence, and kind of process elements as he kind of as he kind of terms it. So 
we've mentioned their Coronation Street and kind of today you only need to go down to Salford Quays and you can book on to a, a Corrie tour, well you could in the pre-Rona days, but actually popular films have also acted as a draw to places, including Rayburn County in Georgia, the site of the film Deliverance in 1972. Now this is useful because it gives us a basis to start thinking about how tourism and heritage overlay one another here. So we have a representation of an area that drew in around 20,000 extra tourists per year and kind of an additional revenue of between two to three million. Now today, if we think of the transformation of places like the Northern Quarter, which you know, frequently look to things like New York as the scene set, and you know, most recently the Crown's used it in this nostalgic view of the royals in the kind of 60s and 70s, and as we'll see in the new series, the 80s. So we have a, a reconstruction of space to create a particular historical period, space, place, or time. And actually that acts as a draw to tourists. You know, the amount of people who go around and will try and you know, catch up pictures for Instagram of looking like film sets. And I think there's a really important point to be made about nostalgia, which not only runs through historic representations of the North, but in cultural representations of the North. And like you say, in, on social media, we see images of Manchester as representing this lost sense of local, small-scale living, which is being wiped out. So nostalgia has been defined as not just a romantic idealisation of the past, but kind of a painful longing to return to it. And how we use buildings in that sense is really important. Which buildings survive, which ones do not? Notable that the buildings that, re that we've retained in Manchester, such as the Refuge on Oxford Road and down the road, the former Corner House Cinema, these are the buildings that we want to maintain a particular image of Manchester because they are slightly sexy. You know, they, these are the sites that attract <laughs> tourists. Yeah, so... I think, you know, the kind of ideas that get captured in, you know, essentially a heritage of ideas, really, in a weird way. Um, you know, it's, it's trying to capture in, in something, in a tour, and, you, know, you know, something that you can go on, physically look at and be, and be guided through of, you know, this tour of the North, basically, Hollywood of the North, which encapsulates Manchester being captured in images, in films, in, in what we call cultural texts. So, you know, not just kind of films and TV programmes, but also novels and popular graphic images and those kind of things of an era. Yeah, so the Hollywood tour came, was the brainchild of Chris Lee. Uh, and it was born out of a joke that he made in 1988 that it would be a good idea to have a Hollywood coach tour in Manchester. But actually, the Corner House Cinema on Oxford Road picked him up on it. And the tour consisted of a 60-minute round trip on a coach looking at the city and how it's been represented in Hollywood films such as Reds and Yanks. And the, at the end of the tour, there would be a, a screening of a film such as Love on the Doll, A Taste of Honey, or Murders in, Man in the Manchester Morgue. Mm, and I think, like, <laughs> in, yeah, like, I know they sound really weird, I know, it's like films today, but these films that have a footing in Manchester, but actually as a form of, you know, a tour to run or kind of, uh, you know, operation of a heritage item it's actually relatively low cost um you know and run out of um so that you know the tour itself was run on a 12-seater minibus driven to locations <laughs> and it's kind of marketed as all year round because you know you can do it pretty much come rain or shine quite helpful in manchester and you know in lee's kind of construction of this it was very much a tailored product so he'd kind of tailor it to what the audience or, you know the people coming on the tour were looking for themselves and it wasn't the only tour 
at the time, Granada were also running a tour of their own studios based on soap, soap themed breaks such as television weekends or soap and grease paint weekends that would allow people to look around the studios of Granada. And then it was Britain's only film and TV tour for a long time. And the Hollywood of the North tour was an alternative tourism attraction which is what Schofield talks about. He, he thinks that this Hollywood of the North tour was an alternative form of tourism. And I think that's also really important if we, you know, if we cast our mind back to the start of this when we were talking about thinking about Manchester as a place that's kind of got these, you know, the mills of Manchester, those famous images. This is a very conscious disruption of that form of heritage. It's moving into spaces that aren't as frequently occupied at that point by people coming on heritage tours. And, you know, and kind of the 1990s is this raft of moments associated with media tourism. And we've got things like the, the City of Drama Festival in 94, Boddington's Manchester Festival of Arts and Television. And this is really effectively driving tourism to Manchester with a heritage lens applied to it, but not consciously going for that same heterogeneous experience. And in doing so, I think it also kind of fractures and opens up new ways about thinking about different histories of the self, populist kind of perspectives, feminist, the things that we've talked about before, Jess, in terms of how history is so diverse. And I think this is a really good way in which people were starting to engage in history in a different way. And I think there's something to be said about layers. So what the three things that we've spoken about today are all tied up with Manchester and how we see Manchester's industrial past always flits in and out. It was what prevented KLM from choosing Manchester City, Manchester Barton Aerodrome as a site. It was also what play Manchester's industrial heritage is the focus of the style estate. And then finally, it's images of Manchester's industrial past that are what appealing people to explore Manchester as a tourism site. And it just kind of goes to show that tourism isn't, isn't really a universal experience but it really shifts according to where and um, when you go and visit these places i think that's my main takeaway from ex kind of delving into the history of tourism i completely agree and i i think it, like another good way i've kind of thought about it is maybe to think that history and heritage is yeah and we talked about this a little bit with jamie as something distinct from history itself but actually its tentacles are reaching <laughs> reaching everywhere and i think thinking about tourism the summer holiday, you know, the break, the getaway. There is so much more that we can think about in how history and heritage operates in that very layered way about us essentially recreating the past. And I think tourism is a really good way to think about those ideas of history and heritage. So thank you, Jamie, for taking part in this week's podcast. And obviously, thank you, Adam, for providing me with your digital company. Thank you, Jess. Always, always a pleasure. Um, and don't forget to tune in to our next podcast. We'll be talking about, you ready for it? Drinking cultures. <laughs> so we have been the University of Manchester History Postgraduate Network for the Manchester Literary Philosophical Society. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.